Cardo. You ready? Yeah. Ty, you ready? Yeah. Blow that whistle, man. Time out. Tyler, who are we taking a time out with today? Well, thanks, Kevin. Well, today, ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, we have Cardell Sims, the founder of the Inside Reentry Academy, keynote speaker, best-selling author, formerly incarcerated, and host of the Reentry Journey podcast. Cardell, thanks for being on the show today. We got uh, just me and Kevin, man. It's, it's, it's us for about 30, 45 minutes. And the, I just wanted to kick it off with, if I'm driving by those boats, those, those casino boats up there in Kansas City, all right, you know what I'm talking about. I look to my right, I'm on the interstate, I see these weird looking boats, but there's a billboard above it, above these boats. If you could make, what, what, what words would you put on that billboard for everyone to read on their way to work and on their way home every day? Oh, man. Um, trust the process. Process. Trust the process. I say that because you know, going on them highways and, you know, usually taking them highways, going past some boats, you're probably going downtown to come from downtown, you know, going to work and everything. And, you know, a lot of people early in the morning probably going through a lot of things leading up to going to work, regret going to work, you know, thinking about their lives early in the morning, drinking their coffee, listening to the radio. And, you know, sometimes you just need to be reminded to trust the process. Everything's going to be all right. Yeah, it's, it's funny you bring that up because I was just talking about that in a meeting that I was in earlier. And I said, you know, when the plane's going down, the first thing that pilot grabs is the manual. So it's, it is a process, even in chaos, the process is will we'll bring that stability. I love that. You guys were talking about barbecue. You were getting me really hungry. I, I, I haven't experienced barbecue. I know, I know you guys are going to smoke. All going to tell me I haven't really experienced barbecue. We have a couple spots. They think they're something. Tyler said they're nothing. So I get it. I get it. <laughs> but if you were to take Tyler and I out for like your favorite meal, um, where are we going and what are we eating? You, you, you don't really have the good barbecue. So I had to take you to one of our, our barbecue spots and Mine's my favorite, and people argue, but but it's it's the classic gate gates. I got to take you to gates, gates barbecue, get you a mixed plate, you know, sit back and and I got I got to take you on the day where it's packed, so we can be standing outside and they still yelling at us to take our order, so, <laughs> you, so you can be able to feel the experience of being in gates. <laughs> oh my goodness, man! Well, Cardo, man, I can I can I can feel your energy all the way down here, man. Um, how, how do you start your day up there in the city of fountains, man? Um, do you have any, 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 uh, just, yeah, give us our, our best, your best practices, experiences and starting your day out. Hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nature person. So when I get up first thing in the morning, uh, especially in this time of year, you know, it gets, it gets light outside real early. So you get to get out there at six o'clock in the morning, just sit back and just listen to nature, you know, watch the birds fly. Uh, listen to everything that's going on, dogs barking. Uh, we got a few cats in our neighborhood, so you get to hear them fighting and everything <laughs> else. It was just calm and peaceful, and you're just thinking about, you know, um, the calmness of the morning and watching the sun rise. You know, it kind of sets my mood for the day. I love Seeing it. Me, it's just me and the birds, man. Nothing can go wrong with it. It's just you and the birds around, man. I, I, I dig it. Yeah. Three Little Birds. I love that song by Bob Marley. <laughs> that, that, always, that, that song is truth, man. It is. It really is truth. But I, I, I feel you on nature. I, I, I really understand what you're saying. It is that reset. But are you reflecting in those moments? Are you thinking at all or not really thinking about the day? Uh, 
I'm in the midst of thinking and um listening at the same time. I know that might sound crazy. Um because I'm kind of zoned in, like, do I hear any new type of sounds? You hear the birds, you hear the dogs, and then you hear them going on at the same time. You start thinking there's something going on around in the neighborhood, the, the cats going off, the dogs going off, birds tell what's going on, and you know, something in the air. But then at the same time, I'm reflecting and thinking about my day, reflecting where I came from, what I've been through, also, you know, where I'm going. That morning time is to say, okay, what's the, what's on your to-do list today? How is this leading to where you're trying to go in life? Well, man, I am excited, Cardell, to learn more about you here in the next few minutes, brother. Um, I mean, you, you've gone through a, a, more than I, I could probably ever imagine, man. And, and to see you smiling on a camera right now, it's, it's uh, I can't imagine how easy life is for you nowadays in a way, man, um, um, from what you've been through and, and, and how you, you carry that smile. But if you want to jump right in, kind of let, let us know how you became the founder of Inside the Reentry Academy. Um, go for it, man. The stage is yours. Oh, yeah. Um, on, the, on the Inside Reentry Academy, it's an um, academy that's focused on going inside of prison. Um, on the inside, basically, this is a twofold thing that reentry starts on the inside of prison itself. Um, how do I know this for a fact? Because I've been through it. I'm formerly incarcerated. I've been to prison five times, actually. I grew up in a poverty neighborhood. Uh, my mother was young. She had me when she was 16. I got a sister that's two years older than, older than me, which she had when she was 14 days, right before her 14th birthday. Um, so uh, my mother was still you know, trying to figure out life, so my grandmother kind of basically raised me. By the time I was a teenager, my mother started experiment with drugs real heavy uh, as far as crack. So um, I was raised in the environment in the projects. Uh, the, the court that I grew up in, I'm originally from Sedalia, Missouri. Um, the court I grew up in was called uh, Killer Court. It was named after, that was, yeah, so that tells you what was going on in, in the court that I lived up in. So I, I, I learned, I, I adapted this product of my environment mindset at an early age. Uh, so by the time I was a teenager, I was fully in the gangs, real heavy, and um, I loved to play basketball, but I was more drifting towards the streets and dropping out of school. All my friends had dropped out of school by this point. And so what I did was, um, when I was 15 years old, I caught a first degree assault case, attempted murder. Um, where, I, where I'm originally from, today, Missouri, we host the Missouri State Fair every year. Um, biggest event in the city. And we talk about uh, things that people coming through in a 10-day process to a town of the size of 40,000. So it's a lot of traffic. And But what people don't know is growing up in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, really early 2000s, it's kind of like a racial tension thing. So when you go out there, it's fights and everything else. So when I was 15, we got in a fight out there and I almost killed someone. And so I got uh, went to juvenile detention centers um, and they was going to send me on down the way. And what happened was I had a couple of basketball coaches come speak on my behalf, you know, explaining to the judge, you know, my living situation, stuff I'm going through my mother. And so they gave me a, uh, basically a choice to say, you know, I'll go through some juvenile time or I can get put in a foster home. And they gave me a stipulation to graduate. I went to one foster home and it just didn't work out. You know, um, it was right in the neighborhood that, I, that they was trying to get me out of. Um, my people, they picked, you know, trying to fight and stuff like that. So a basketball coach was like, nah, this ain't going to work. So he, he put me in another foster home and it was just perfect for me. Far away from town. And, and, and uh, um, I came from the hood. So this was a suburban neighborhood. Just everything was just different. 
And so I graduated high school and I got a basketball scholarship to play junior college basketball. But when I graduated, I instantly moved right back home to the other side of town where I originally came from. At this time, my mother is probably at the um, beginning phase of her recovery phase, but you know she's still going through what she's going through. And um, we didn't have, I didn't come from money, so we didn't have money. So only way I do to take care of myself in college was sell drugs. So I started selling drugs back with the same gang. So I kind of had like a double life. I would go to school, play basketball, do the workouts, uh, study hall and all that. But as soon as all that done or in between all that, I'm in the street selling drugs and gang banking. Um, I, caught, caught an, I caught an assault case um, right before my um, sophomore year in college. And during this time, I was in talks and signing with UNLV uh, to go play basketball after I transferred from junior college. And so I end up losing that um, scholarship because of me getting in some trouble. But I had a friend that was in West Georgia to play basketball. And he was like, man, we'll take you down there. Come down there. So I signed the letter intent to play down there. And he gets kicked off the team before I get down there. <laughs> so now I'm down there. And um, I'm far away from home. So you're talking about a, a kid that's coming um, from a, a town of 40,000. Uh, right outside Kansas City, east of Kansas City, 45, 60 miles, an hour from Kansas City, is going down to a, the Atlanta area uh, for the first time. So I've never really been, even though I traveled and played basketball, I've never really been outside my comfort zone for the first time. So this is it. And I just took the same mentality, the street mentality down there. When I was in West Virginia, basketball, it's the same thing. But this time I was just getting deeper into the drug game and stuff like that. And so what was going on and what happened was we had, uh, when I got down there and I, I had a guy on my team whose brother was involved in the drug business real heavy and uh, me and him connected real good. So once I started being with him, I would uh, just started spending more time focusing on the streets than I was basketball. And so I'm getting in trouble, I'm fighting, I'm game banging and I made it through uh, my senior year of basketball so what happened after that, as soon as my last game of my senior year of basketball, I just dropped out of school and got full-fledged in the streets. Uh, within six months, I caught my first drug case with drug cat trafficking. I got probation. I got out, went right back to doing the same thing. Caught another drug and gun case. I, I took that to trial. I lost. And at 23 years old, I got sentenced to 19 years in the Missouri Department of Corrections. And so I was in the Missouri Department of Corrections with a 19-year sentence and where I went. It was, it's called The Walls. Uh, it's a museum now. They closed it down. But when I went, uh, when you walk in there through reception and, and you get booked in and stuff like that, there's a sign on the wall that was written in red letters that said, leave all your dreams and hopes behind. Mm -hmm. uh, the nickname for this prison is called The Bloodiest 48 Acres. That's how deadly this prison is. Yeah, um, it, it's crazy. So it was. A, I was just going in there as a young man and didn't know nothing about it. So basically, I was just in prison jailing. What, we, what I mean by jailing is, you know, um, fighting, stabbing, playing basketball, talking about which rapper got the most money, uh, what female look good in what magazine, uh, just little things. And so uh, while I'm doing this time, in the middle of the sentence, a Senate bill passed to cut my mandatory minimum time and a half that I had to do in one of the uh, drug cases that I had. And so I was up for immediate parole. But I really wasn't doing that with my time. So when I go to my parole, I walk in there and they say it's the fastest pro here in history. That's what the guard said. 
The guard walked me to the door. He, he went to the bathroom. I went inside to the parole hearing. When I walked in there, they looked at me, it was three of them. They said, Mr. Sims, you are part of the problem. You got a few more years with us. And what did you think about institutional behavior and drug treatment? Well, in the criminal system, among criminal mentality, we all know that if you get to the drug treatment and the behavior treatment program, the sooner you get there, the sooner you get out. So I was like, yeah, I'll take it. And that was it. I walked out, uh, the guard came out the bathroom. He told me, yeah, go on in. I said, man, I already been in. He said, man, I ain't never seen nobody go in and come out that fast. <laughs> I said, well, what nothing else we need to talk about. They said I had a few more years with them and that's all I needed to hear. You know, what else we need to talk about? So I'll go back to the compound and probably after about a year and a half, they called me up for treatment. So I go to treatment, it's a six month treatment. So when I go into treatment, the treatment is still being ran like a regular prison. It ain't supposed to be ran, but the activities that's going on in the treatment program is like I was on a regular prison. And so all the staff came in there, they, they, they uh, shut it down and made all of us that was locked up, line up, and then they put us on what they call tight house. Uh, tight house is where they sit you in the chair and they set you and you got to sit in this chair with your hands on your knees and look and stare at a wall all day from like five in the morning to probably like five by 12 hours. So while you're staring at the wall, they're going through your files, they're talking bad about you, talking crazy to you, and they steady kicking people out. <laughs> you get kicked out. So this was, uh, this was in 2006. So if I would have got kicked out, I wouldn't have got out of prison in 2015. Mm -hmm. So I had to take, you kind of got to take everything that they say if you want to, you know what I'm saying, get out. So I ended up making it through that after 180-day uh, treatment program. We was on Thai House for 131 days. So made it through that, I got out and went right back to the same neighborhood, same block, same gang, doing the same thing. And I called another drug case within a year and a half of me being out. Um, got set up by my cousin and I go back to prison while fighting the case. Um, I end up beating that case on the technicality. I get out, same thing, do the same thing over again, catch another drug case. Um, end up getting that time ran concurrent with my backup time on parole. Go to prison, do like a year, year and a half. I get out, same neighborhood, same block. This time, I'm in. The, um, my gang is at war with another gang, so some people got shot, murders happened. So all of us was taking pictures, and I got violated for association to being on parole with other convicted felons, associating with other convicted felons. They sent me back to prison, and for a music video. So all this ties in together. They sent me back to prison, and so I get out this time. I go to the same thing, doing the same thing, and then. After about a year and a half, two years, they wouldn't bother me. Police wouldn't bother me. The federal government came and picked me and 31 other people up. So, uh, conspiracy charges, gang activity, uh, aiding and abetting. There was a lot of charges. And they walked us in this courtroom in the Kansas City, Western District of, of Missouri, uh, Charles Whitaker Federal Courthouse. They walk us in there. They got us all in there. They handed us all these papers. On these papers is an indictment charges. Uh, they got your name on there, your nickname. Uh, all the charges, zero to uh, 20, uh, five to 40, 10 to life. And I wasn't really, I was looking at the paper, but I wasn't focused on the time stuff because I faced this type of time before. At the top of the paper, what caught my attention, at the top of this paper said, Cardell Sims versus the United States of America. Hmm. And hmm. right then and there, I was like, man, uh, like, I like, like, like you really did it. Like you graduated, you know, and I, you know, and at this time I'm 34 years old, 34, 35. I just spent my twenties in and out of prison, beginning my thirties in and out of prison. 
So while I'm looking at the paper and I'm seeing that, I asked myself, like, man, why do you keep finding yourself in these situations? And the answer I came up with was, it was myself. I keep putting myself in these situations. And so from that point on, I made an oath, like I signed an oath to myself that whenever I got released, I was going to be better than what it was, who I was when I went in, better than what I was when I went in. And so from that point on, I quit reading like urban urban novels. Because that's how I used to read in prison, urban novels. Uh, I quit reading them. And I just started educating myself through reading. Started reading different books. How to set goals. Knowledge yourself. Science yourself. Seed of the soul. Rich dad, poor dad. Contagious. I can go on and on with books. So I just started reading. But while I was reading the books, I would take notes. Because I knew I would get transferred and I couldn't take the books with me. So when I got transferred, I sent the notes home. And when I got to the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, I had all the paperwork sent back to me. So I would keep that same regimen, bettering myself, knowledge and information. Then I took this class called Consciousness and Success while in prison. And it taught me about vision boards and affirmations. And so I applied them two things to the regimen that I already had going on. So I built me a vision board, took all my pictures of the cars, rap concerts and all that down on my wall and built the vision board. I used to go to the library, steal magazines and rip the pages out. And I built me a vision board. So every morning I woke up, I would say an affirmation. Um, I am greater than the situation that I'm in. I said that for like six months straight before I had, before I had faith. What I mean by that is um, belief is what we think is the truth. Faith is what we know to be the truth. So I didn't need to believe I was greater than the situation that I was in. I needed to know that I was greater than the situation that I was in. So it took me like six months to really know. One morning I woke up and like, I am really greater than this situation. And so I just started looking at my vision board and every day I would pick something off my vision board and I would spend that week to learn about it. So I didn't know how to run business and like that. So I had a picture of Jay-Z behind an office desk that represented being a businessman. So I needed to figure out how to bust the, the formation of business how to start a business. I said, I had people send me the actual paperwork on how to, on that you needed to fill out. So I said, practice filling that out and everything else. So when I got out to start a business, I knew exactly how the process go. But I did that with everything on my vision board. I wanted to be a speaker. So I had to do my research on being a speaker. I wanted to be a life coach. I had to do my research on being a life coach. Everything that I wanted to do on my vision board, I, I spent all day, every day until I was released, putting it together. Then I got released. I had only thing I had, no money or nothing. I had four, but they give us these brown legal folders. So these big brown legal folders, I had all information, my goals, my plans, my everything in this these folders. And that's all I had. And I was released to a halfway house. Walked up in there, they gave me a bus ticket and they gave me a job, list of jobs. And it was all manufacturing jobs. And I'm like, man, I'm not doing, I already knew I wasn't doing no manufacturing work. Because for me, it was the setup for failure. Because people always say, People out of prison, they just take any job and be happy. But the reality is, under that that thought process, you telling us to go in and take a job that don't fit us, it makes us unhappy, which is going to lead to us quitting. And if you was like me, if I quit the first job out of prison, I was that was my excuse to go right back in the streets. So on this list of jobs, only job they didn't have that wasn't inside of a factory was telemarketing. And I said, this is perfect because it's going to teach me and help me become a better speaker and a communicator. So I went over there, the guy hired me, had me read the script, and that was the best thing that happened to me when I got out of prison was getting that job. I made $11 an hour, this is 2017. I made $11 an hour, uh, 40 hours a week. It's about 440 after taxes, about 360. 
Now, I only got half of that check because I owe $700 a month in child support. So I only made like $120 a week, but I knew this was a problem because I had it wrote down before I came out. So I had all this. I had problems and I had the solutions to them. And so I just, um, I had came up with a company name and I had wrote some books while I was incarcerated, some novels. So I just typed up all the books. So my, so my work day in the halfway house, when I got up at five, rode the bus, went to work, got off at three, back to the halfway house about four, started typing up like a couple of chapters on the books. Then I would do my life coaching courses online. That would be my day. I did it all the way over for like six months. And then I got a, a life coaching diploma. I got out the halfway house, got a job at five in the morning, a Dollar Tree stocking. And then they had a sporting goods store right next to it. So I went from five to 11 stocking. Then from 12 to seven, working in the sporting goods store as a sales associate, working with customers and stuff like that. But at the same time, I was typing my books up and I was printing out shirts. So I would host my own speaking engagements on the side for free. But I would sell my books and t-shirts and stuff to make extra money. So I wouldn't go back to the streets. Then I had me like a little small line service. I had like 10 people that I would cut their grass, but it was just enough for me to cut their grass and have extra money. So I, I won't go back to the streets. And then I knew I couldn't go back home. So I knew that had always been a trigger. Every time I got out of prison, I went back to the same thing. So I said, I need to go somewhere new. And I picked St. Joseph because it, it, it wasn't um, directly in Kansas City and it was a nice size city. And it was a and it was a growing business city. And I, I knew I was going to be in the business when I got out of prison. I knew that's what I was going to be. I'm going to be in the business. And so I figured this was the perfect spot. So then um, when I got here, I needed a job. And I worked in a, uh, I used to do marketing and promoting in like Home Depot, Sam Club, Home and Garden shows, getting people to sign up for home improvement. But I chose that profession because I wanted to be a speaker. So this was still grooming me to be a speaker and communicate with people because I had a communication a problem with people coming out of prison. I was standoffish. That's just the way prison had made me. And so uh, after that, COVID hit and shut that type of work down, and I had a mentor. My mentor told me I wasn't giving the people my life. He knew my story, and I wasn't sharing it. And he challenged me to write a book about my life, and I wrote a book called Inmate the Inspiration, and it took off. It did well. And from then, I started my podcast. And it positioned me to be right in the field where I belong, the reentry space. And so from that point on, I was just like, I just started building. I want to have, a, I want to have a program where I want to be able to go back inside and run my own program. But I didn't want to go through the programs that was already in prison. Like I didn't want to go through the prison fellowships or the other. I want my own program where I come in. I had control over it. I get have my own curriculum. So I designed a program on the Inside Reentry Academy. And I opened it up here in Missouri. And the good thing about it was during the pandemic while building the program, it allowed me to create a virtual side. So then that allowed me to have access to all the prisons inside the United States that have virtual stuff. You know, all you really need is uh, the program and the, and the TV, you know, things like that and, and laptops. So that allowed me to be able to be in Missouri and still run my program in other states. And I've got the contract with Arizona. And so I run the virtual Academy in Arizona as well. And so from that point on, I had just did a, a motivational speaking tour uh, for the federal government. For the first time in the federal government history, they had a grant that allowed formerly incarcerated speakers to go back into prisons and speak. And so from that experience, I did like five institutions. So from that experience, 
it, it, it made me want to take my program and put it on the forefront and go around the United States and, and host my program in a workshop for one day. Because what, what, one thing about my program, what I, what I do is, is I work on personal development for those that's incarcerated. I have that created vision board for themselves and everything else. But one of the most important things I do is in my network, I bring other successful formerly incarcerated individuals in, in my classes where they want to come in uh, physically or they want to come in virtually to share their story because I want to keep painting the picture to my class that what life after incarceration can look like because we never see it. It's kind of like we was talking earlier how we only see the negative side when people come out of prison. We see shows like Life After Lockup and all this and you see these people fail and that's yeah. all we think of those coming out of prison is that they fail and they fail. And so I want to show my class who's less locked up that there are people out there that's getting out of prison doing some successful things. And so I took that same model and I just turned it into a tour. Um, one morning in December, I woke up and said, I'm really going to do it. And then in March of 2000, was well, December 2022, March 2023, we was on the road. I had a team of 95% of my team successful, formerly incarcerated. The other are reentry uh, re educators as well. And we just went on the tour. Um, we did Missouri, Tennessee, Illinois, Kentucky, Florida, and we got a lot of more states lined up. So right now we on the tour and um, I'm just doing what I do in the reentry field as far as that. Well, Cardell, it sounds like you're not a businessman. You're a business man. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, I really had a quick question for you, brother. Uh, your, your vision board, right? You keep talking about right. what was the difference between your vision board when you had all the, the, the rappers and girls up there, when you tore that down, what was, what did your new vision board look like? Um, it, it, it just looked like I had some sayings on there. First thing I put on there was these sayings. Um, one was think big even when you are small. That was my thing. Think big even when you are small. And then I had one that represented what I represented. It was called Visionary Hustler. Like this was the main thing. And that's actually what I named my, I named my company when I first came out was Visionary Hustler. Uh, manifest your vision and be the boss of your mission. So I had these sands on there and then I just started putting these visuals that how I seen myself, like, like the Jay-Z behind the office desk, like that's to the max of where I want to be. It wasn't no small thinking. It was like, this is where I want to be in 10 years. When it's all said and done, this is where I want to be, but I'm going to have to start here. Then I had like, um, I had a woman on there that was kind of more like a businesswoman, and that was, that was going to be like, I never been married before or nothing like that. So this was the vision of my wife, the representative strong female that was about her business that, that stood tall and could hold her own. And this is what the person represented. And that's what I felt like. Then I had um like the vehicles. I had, you know, I had the picture of a car, but it wasn't nothing like fancy or nothing like that. It was like, this is the type of stuff like want housing. I wanted the housing represented me wanting to come out and own my own housing. I never owned, the only thing I knew up to this point before I started vision, before I started uh, building that vision board and doing all the reading, all I knew was street stuff. All I knew was just the block. All I knew was just selling on the point of selling drugs all day. We talked a little bit before, but growing perspective. And, and one of the things I wanted to go back to is because you kind of touched on just the environment that you grew up in is I had a fascinating conversation and somebody said that safety is a privilege, right? Um, we sometimes take our safety at home as a privilege in and of itself. We're awarded others to possibly see that future um, because they're safe. You're spending your time 
and others are spending their time potentially fearing for their survival, right? And and, and that in and of itself limits that perspective or the just seeing a future for yourself. And it's kind of what I've heard almost you say is like, you didn't even see a future for myself until you sat down and really did a vision board to say, I can achieve these things. Um, I want to ask, because you talked about, I'm a big intention person and and uh, I absolutely love your story. And I think story is the way to really connect and emotionally connect with people that um, have logically been tried to tell, told, hey, here's an opportunity. Here's another chance. Um, but if you can't see it as an opportunity, a chance, and they're telling you their dream, it's, it's you don't see it as your dream and you're not going to take ownership of it. So I love the emotion. I love going on tour, sharing success stories, because really that's probably going to have to help motivate some individuals to think differently. And that's really, it's just a change of thought. You mentioned you used to say to yourself, I'm greater than the situation I'm in today. What is that new morning intention for yourself? Because you've now achieved probably many of those things that were on your vision board, at least at certain levels. But like, what's next? How do you keep growing? How do you keep becoming your best self every day, Cardell? Like, how do you continue to challenge yourself? Because now you've gotten here, others are probably going through the same thing. They feel misaligned with the job that they're in right now because they followed that easiest path. Your path was not clearly not easy, but you ended up doing what you always said you wanted to do. So I, I think with me, it was, um, I have an ultimate vision. Ultimate, it's all said and done, I got this ultimate vision. Uh, this ultimate vision is to have me probably like 50 to 100 acres, kind of going them acres, no, and, and now for real, and, and going them acres and build housing and vegetation and, and things like that for, for my family, future generations, and, and, and have this trust and have these, these companies and these businesses and this trust to so I can have my grandchildren and things them, to leave them something with. So everything that I do, the ultimate goal is to this point um, in that in that realm, but also doing it as I walk in my purpose, not selling myself um, out for money to do it. Because you say, well, at the end, you saying you need a lot of money or you need the money. But um, when you put the money first, then you will start. People will start sacrificing their characters, they, you know, things about themselves to get the money. And so my thing is to serve in my purpose and allow my purpose and me serving in my purpose to open them doors to keep leveling up. And so I'm able to make that ultimate vision come into fruition. Um, so when I wake up in the morning, I always got this ultimate vision that's there. But in the smaller realm, my vision is to keep elevating because I'm doing what I said I want to do. And a lot of times we get to a point where we get to where we're doing what we said we want to do. And then we stop there because we're not understanding that there's levels to what we do and what we say we want to do. So yeah. we was talking earlier, for example, we were talking earlier, like, man, uh, man, I wish I could, it's Monday where I can sit back and get paid to ask questions. That there actually is, right? Yeah. You're just at the level where you're doing it right now. You're doing what you love to do. Now you just got to level up in what you're doing, what you love to do. And that's just what I'm doing. Like, I'm doing what I love to do, but how can I level up? My first level up was to put in the program and running my own program. My second level up was the tour. 
um, the tour represented three, uh, two things to me, represented on the inside. So when I say on the inside, and I gave you the two reasons, there's also a third one behind it, is to give successful formerly incarcerated educators to be the teachers on the inside. Because now you got someone they can relate to. And so when I put the tour, I put the tour on for to bring hope and showing the, um, the possibilities of life after incarceration for those of us incarcerated. And secondly, showing the prison system, showing the ward, and showing the education system what successful formerly incarcerated educators can do and possibly getting them to get a contract with their program inside these institutions that we that we've been in, you know. And so that's what I chose to do on that because. Um, we have, and just a prime example is, um, I invited one lady, formerly incarcerated, to one of the institutions that we did, and within two weeks after we did that institution, and that was the only one she did, she got a she got a contract with that institution to come in to run her program because they liked her presentation during the workshop. So I wake up every day to just, like I said, I got that ultimate vision, but my vision now is just to elevate the levels in the vision that I've already reached because it's still part of my vision. I just got to get to the level where I feel like I um, left my mark in, in the okay. field that I'm doing. That ultimately is a part of your legacy just as much as leaving something for those grandkids. It's just leave it. I'm, I'm like you, leave it better than what I found it, right? <laughs> if, I, if I can make 1% difference in a positive way, then 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 I feel like I've I've done what I've meant to be meant to do. Um, your personal discovery, I, I think, is really important because it, it speaks to not only the challenges that you directly and indirectly have an impact on within the incarceration system today, and I hope to see you continue to span across the entire country to really focus on um, you were closest to the problem. And a lot of these other programs are created by others that think they know the answer to the problem. Um, so seeing somebody that was so close to it and can tell from their perspective as to what I actually needed and what you thought I needed were two different things. And that really speaks to, I think, a lot of the challenges that we face as a community, as a, as a society, as, as most businesses as well, because most lack that personal discovery. Um, what suggestions do you have for people to because they are misaligned, right? It's not just a job. It's it, Yes, this is an opportunity to make an income, but if I'm not doing what I love every day, I am going to leave and keep continuing on this search. But if I'm not willing to change, that environment's always going to stay the same. How do you, any tips that you have or that you give to taking that first step into personal discovery? We have a lot of people pleasers out there, right? They don't even know what they want and feel. They just go along with everybody else. How do you get people to start that initial self-reflection required to actually determine what they want to even be able to see it as a vision for themselves? Right. So I tell people to, to really dig down and tap into yourself to see what you want to go yourself and create a vision for yourself. You got to break away from your everyday normal distractions. Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of people get up first thing they do, they get to their phone and they want to look at social media. They want to see what's going on and haven't even taken the time to reflect about what they're going to do throughout the day, reflect on some of the issues that they might be going. So to the first day of the morning when you first get up, that's why you take that time to reflect. That's why I, that's why I do. Because now I can think and reflect on is there anything that I'm dealing with? Where am I trying to go with myself in life? And just asking yourself questions. And 
you know, if you if you have a hard time with that, you know, throughout the day, write some questions down. So in the morning time, while you're sitting and doing the reflecting, and you got these questions to ask yourself. Uh, because not having a vision in life, oh, man. You're just going through the motions. You feel... Yeah, going through the motions. I always, yeah, I, um, I always tell the guys, man, um, when I'm teaching, uh, even when I'm speaking, and I'm working with people not just in prison and outside of prison. Like, not having a, a vision is kind of like just getting in your car and you open up Google Map and you're just saying, hey, take me where you want to take me. Yeah. You're signing you up for a ride. Just you signing up yeah, for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> and where I end up is where I end up, and I yeah. deal with it. Yeah. And I think I, so I, many people can can relate to that, though. Like they almost go into autopilot, and 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 I think you talked about, and a lot of people talk about being somebody totally different. And you talked about it earlier in your life. You had you were almost living two different lives. That's not different yeah. than anybody else. And we kind of all saw that from the professional world. We we all were doing that. I don't, I hardly told people about my personal space at all. Um, and it's, it's almost like we, we lost like social isolation that is only going to be rebuilt by sharing perspective, being vulnerable, being emotional with people to really unify that emotional connection that makes us human at the end of the day. And, right. And it yeah. said something about autopilot and it, and it really stood out because when you think about it, a lot of people are just on autopilot so just for so long that their autopilot doesn't even like you don't have a vision for yourself. You're just used to waking up. I'm gonna take the children to school. I'm gonna go to work. When I come home, this I'm gonna pick the children up and this and that, and then that's it. And then they longer for something more, but they just not they've been on autopilot so long that they don't have the vision that they can't see anything outside of what they're doing. They made a movie about that, Groundhog Day, right? That looked crazy. But I, I think what you're saying, though, is like it, it's spot on, right? We we want to be distracted. Now, I was forced. There was no distractions during the pandemic like everybody else. I didn't have loss. So I take that as a privilege in and of itself. It was traumatic. Sure, we all have trauma from it. And we're all kind of dealing with it in our own way. And we see the spikes in mental health and the 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 health issues related to social isolation but like without reflection and constant distraction we're going to continue to do the same things over and over again but expect a different result that's insanity and that's kind of where i think that we're going is that we're in such a distracted society where it's me and everything else my consumer behavior is telling me how important that i am on social media and my buying experiences, it can be weird when it's like, wait, I have to care about what you think and what you do and what you say. Um, I thought it was all about me. Um, so I think that no reflection, we're going to continue to do the same things and expect a different result without giving us the time and space and energy, frankly, to, to even reflect, to project that vision for ourselves. I think we all sign ourselves up for the corporate visions that we work for just because when you're directionless, you'll take directions from anybody. Yeah, true. And it, it goes down to um, your, your vision and expectations is, is, is linked. If you don't have no expectations for yourself, then you ain't going to have no vision for yourself. Um, only expectations that I had prior to me changing my life around, one thing I expected for me to do was get up every day, go down to a block and sell crack and hang out and get bang bang and whatever comes with that life. Um, when I started having expectations for myself, 
I started carrying myself a different way and moving a different way mm. because now I got these expectations. And with them expectations came these visions. So, with the, you know, so now that I started expecting these things, like, so every day I wake up with a purpose because I got expectations for myself. And them expectations make me carry myself a, a, a certain way. Uh, that it's almost like the same thing I say in businesses when I'm consulting. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So even defining exactly. those expectations for yourself, you have no idea where you are. Are you on? Are you off path? Are you because you don't have those guardrails that uh, are telling you when to when to correct and when you're in the lane and when to when to self correct harder than you normally would. Um, right. but you can't do that without reflecting and looking backwards too. Cause I think looking backwards is your life telling you stories as to what is your, what are you passionate about? What do you not like? Um, because your those memories, those, those positive and negative memories are the ones that are etched into our minds and we can't forget. Um, there's reasons. Um, right. I want to ask, I want to ask you a question. Um, and if it's totally offline, let me know. But when you were growing up, was that the only future that you saw for yourself because your world was that small? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, most definitely. That's, that's all. I, that's all. I, like I said, I'd never um, really been anywhere. Yeah. Up to, up to that point. So how do we seeing... how do we solve that? Right. How do we solve that? How do we get to uh, where there's a famous Frederick Douglass quote? And I'm up here in Rochester, so they're always sharing it. But something like. Um, look to have an impact on the children and not the man. And and here you are at the end of the line, you you are helping these individuals after. What from your estimation, from what you know, from what you've seen, what you heard, the stories of others, how can we make an impact in these children's lives before it gets to this point? Where they make the wrong decision. Uh, outside of uh, my reentry, I have a, a nonprofit organization called North Board. This organization, of course, you do. I, I, of course, you do. I should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, it's designed to basically um, bring value back into the neighborhood that I helped destroy. Whether it's um, through real estate, whether it's through uh, programs or whatever we can do to bring the value back. So one of our programs. We got a sports program. We got a Spark the Hearts for the Arts youth program. But what we try to do in the programs is we try to be able to give them the opportunity to see out their environment, to see how big. And you say, well, we, they have phones and stuff now. It's different than looking at it on the phone and actually being there, um, giving these children opportunities to get scholarships and, and stuff to take them out to the country to visit other countries, to see how big the world actually is because if we can get them out their environment to see other things in the world, then their vision will be able to expand. That was one of the problems with me. I sat on this corner and in this block and in this small town and outside of the basketball trips and things like that, I never seen anything else outside of growing up as a kid. And I was stuck in this space. So when you give them exposure, so the, the answer would be exposure. Expose, expose those young ones to things that are outside of their environment and greater things as well because there's a lot of children that don't there's never been outside of their environment and then there's others that grow up in that suburban neighborhood that you foster home number two that you said was entirely different just a totally different environment that was safe and probably allowed you to start to heal and then focus on studies and education 
because it grew your definition of expectations, which helped grow that vision later on in life. But that's, you can't do, we, we take some of these things for such granted, I think. And I think it, 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 it could go both ways. I, I say yeah. send suburbia into to those environments so we can, they can actually gain the perspective that they need because they think it's easy. They think these chances and these opportunities to your point, Hey, they get out of they get out of jail. They should take whatever job and be happy with whatever whatever job that they have. That's the perception because it's a chance that they shouldn't. Some believe they shouldn't even have. That's insane to me when we all go sit in church on Sundays and say, "Hey, how do you how do you take care of of others? How do you how do you help the little guy? How do you?" We all say it, but nobody actually does it because we're unwilling to change our perspective and get outside our comfort zone to push ourselves into these environments to gain that perspective too from yeah. my side. Yeah, that, that, that is true. But they, like you said, that's, that's a perception um, because people perceive that everyone that's incarcerated is these, these things that they see on these TV shows or that they watch on TV and not everyone is like that. But when you put one person in your category, everybody, you say prison around some people, um, it's, you know, it's, they, it, gets, it gets crazy. And so they think everybody that's incarcerated has done these uh, horrific things and not everyone's like that. Now, you have people that are incarcerated that they belong there, uh, but you have a lot of cases that where it's majority of the time is they dealing with a um, substance abuse issue. They deal with uh, mental health uh, uh, awareness and issues all because of something that transpired most likely in childhood, yeah. growing up, childhood trauma. Um, but that's just the perception. And so that's why I fight hard to do what I do to change that perception of people that's getting out of prison. Not everybody's getting out of prison is is bad. It's going to go back as recidivating. You know? And then again, we can't just put this on one, one time. Like I've been to prison. It took me five times to get it right. And I hope it don't take a lot of people five times to get it right, but not everybody gets it right the first time. So we can't, you know, saying basically cast off. Okay, you done got your one chance, and just because you messed up again, then we just cast them off because they got to figure it out again. So I think, like you said, man, it's just the perception, you know, of what everybody has. You have to change your perception. And be willing to to collect new inf insights and information to actually be willing. You never to know if you find yourself in them situations. I always tell people, you don't ever know. You you could be leaving a bar. You had your couple of drinks and not thinking another. You know, boom, hit oh, yeah. kill somebody. Now you in this situation. So you got to just look at things, perception, man, and being willing to to change and say, you know, how the views are wrong. Yeah. I, I absolutely love it because I think at the beginning of the show that nobody got to hear before we got on, you, you said the word disruptor. And I think disruptor is a leader. Leaders aren't good with the status quo. They're continuously trying to evolve and adapt to the new scenarios and situations to ensure that everybody is successful within their own definition. So disruptor, you and I both on the disruptor side, um, having the ability to articulate in a way to get others to start to factor or willing to change that perspective is key. And I think that disruptors come translation because it sometimes is a translation because we're saying the same thing, but we're saying we're choosing different words. Um, I did not hear influencer 
Um, these are these are terms that I think are with the younger generations are really all about influencing. But what can you disrupt to grow your impact? And Cardell, I, I'm just happy that you said yes to being on this podcast because I think you encompass what a disruptor truly is, is taking some of those bumps in the road, the, the, the not the easiest path or the non-traditional path that you're told to take um, and growing it into something that probably at times you couldn't even see yourself. Um, I'm inspired by you. I hope well, many are, others are inspired by you to think differently, not only about what they're doing today, but how they can have an impact on somebody else's life. Because um, it ain't all about you. Um, and, and what strengths and skills and abilities are we not giving back to our community to really grow back together um, in a way. So thank you. Um, this was a blast. I hope you had a good time, but um, I'm so excited to help support you in any possible way. And this is only one smoke, small token of appreciation that uh, I hope to make future support you in any possible way to watch you succeed and watch that uh, impact grow and get you those 50 to 100 acres one day to, to visit that uh, that beautiful society that you're building. So <laughs> I want to be a part of that. So I love that. That's the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate goal. But yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Um, You all having me being a guest. Um, You said something that just as you was wrapping up about, you know, um, being of service. And when I walked out of prison, there was just one saying that I, I always stood on. And it's by Helen Walton, the, the wife of Sam Walton. And most likely if you go on a lot of Sam Club, you'll see, you might see the Sam, this written on the wall as you're walking out. It says it's not about what you gather, but what you scatter. It would tell you what kind of life that you had lived. Wow. And so I, I really... We stand on that right there. Well, I do like I can't like. It's not about what I gather; it's about what I scatter. It's about what I give. I the that. effort I give to the purpose, I mean, to the passion, to to the love, just everything. You know, that's what I stand on. I love it. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Cardell. Thank you so much for all that you do, and thank you for. Um, making that impact within the communities. Um, and I think we're only starting to hear um, just the beginning, my friend. So I so appreciate your time, um, your passion, um, and and your vision, um, because that's, a, I think a lot of people would agree with you. So any way that we can help, just let us know. <laughs>